Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Angelina Thupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please practice excellent self and community care while listening. On today's episode of Feral Visions, we're looking at what it means to love with accountability. On that note, is it even possible to love without accountability? In general, let alone in a rape culture. And how does a lack of accountability impact the health and wellness of our families and social movements? To begin to engage these questions, I sat down with my longtime friend, Aisha Shahida Simmons. Aisha is an award-winning black feminist, lesbian, documentary filmmaker, activist, cultural worker, writer, and international lecturer. An incest and adult rape survivor, she is the creator of the internationally acclaimed Ford Foundation-funded film, No, The Rape Documentary, and the Just Beginnings collaborative-funded multimedia campaign, hashtag Love with Accountability. Aisha is also a visiting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania's School of Social Policy and Practice, where she's affiliated with the Evelyn Jacobs Ortner Center for Violence. An associate editor of the online publication, The Feminist Wire, Aisha has screened her work, taught undergraduate and graduate courses, guest lectured, and facilitated workshops across the North American continent and in numerous countries in Europe, Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean. Thank you so much for coming down to the station to be in dialogue, Aisha. I really appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome, Anjali. Glad Mm -hmm. to be able to do it. How are you doing today? Um, it's ups and downs today. It's a uh, challenging time, but getting to some, I think, root root issues. I've been kind of dancing on the surface, and I think I'm getting to the root of some things. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's so good to hear. Beautiful. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I'm for coming in a ball of tears, but, you know, mm-hmm. so, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, this is the work. Right. You can say mm-hmm. that again. Yeah. Some mm-hmm. days are like that, to be sure. Right. Right. 
So I would love to just uh, first off begin by sharing tremendous gratitude that I have for you for the work that you do and for how you've devoted your life to creating uh, cultural products and processes for the rest of us to bear witness to in support of our collective liberation. So I would love to really just begin by first thanking you for all that you do in your life. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know that you have started working on a new project that has been so incredible to be able to bear witness to from afar, Love with Accountability. Would you be open to sharing with our listeners a little bit about that project, please? Yes. um, Love with Accountability is a Just Beginnings collaborative funded project. It's my project, but the funding comes from 100% of the funding comes from um, the Just Beginnings Collaborative, which is funded by the Novo Foundation. It is a multimedia campaign um, designed um, specifically for communities of African descent, but it's for everyone, but that's where my, my focus is. Looking at how accountability is a radical form of love needed to end child sexual abuse. And so when I'm talking about love, I'm talking about love as a force and a power um, not that transcends romantic love or even familial love, that it's just this force that I think keeps needs that we need to keep the world moving in a sane and humane place. Obviously, we need a lot of it. Um, so often as survivors, and I'm speaking as a child sexual abuse survivor and adult rape survivor, but in the context of child sexual abuse, we are told that if we loved our family, we would not break the silence. We would not talk about um, the harm done to us. And I'm saying that it is precisely because of love that we have to talk about it. And so I'm, my, my work, my goal with love with accountability is that we think about accountability as a form of love, that not as a form of punishment, but as an inviting end to interrupt, to um, address child sexual abuse um, and recognizing that all parties of harm. So we have to clearly place the survive victim survivor at the center like that, that has she or he or they have to be at the center. Um, but then also recognizing that the person who's causing the harm is clearly in some form of harm as well. It has been harmed in some form of fashion. And, and what does that look like in a way that holds them accountable? Mm-hmm. Uh, This idea of being survivor-centered might be new to some folks. Could you talk a little bit more about some of what that looks like? Yeah, survivor-centered for me um, means that we are thinking about what are the survivor's needs and issues so that we're not going to tell the survivor, well, Johnny or Mary had a hard day at work or they're dealing with racism at the job or, you know, um, and so we have to understand that this is why they're doing what they're doing. No. There's no, there's no reason or excuse to cause harm. Um, and so, and while we may be in, you know, very upset about white supremacy, I know I am, that it should never, um, ever be an excuse to cause any form of harm in terms of, uh, domestic violence, sexual assault or anything. So survivor centered is really focusing on what, making sure that the survivor is safe, that they don't feel re-traumatized, re-victimized and that while, and that, um, holding the person who's caused harm accountable or helping or supporting them is not at the expense of the survivor. Mm-hmm. So also around accountability, then, since that can look so different in so many different contexts, uh, could you elaborate a little more on uh, community accountability more broadly when it comes to, say, 
healing from sexual assault, child sexual assault? Community accountability in terms of broad strokes is really, you know, first of all, how do we define who is our community, right? So mm-hmm. some people, it's just their family of origin. Other people, it is their chosen families. It's the, the members in their church or mosques or synagogues or temple or in their schools. Um, so, how, you know, so using community very broadly, but community accountability is not allowing that person who's caused harm off the hook so that mm-hmm. we know, we may know that someone has abused or um, a child and then if they are a deacon in a church or a leader in a synagogue that they are not then therefore celebrated that mm-hmm. that that all all spaces in community are holding this person accountable mm-hmm. and not and I don't believe in prisons um I still have a hard time envisioning what that would look like what a world would look like without prison but what i do know is that prison is not going to stop rape or child sexual abuse adults and children are raped and abused in prison there's no rehabilitation so what are these ways in which we can hold people accountable in our communities and one of those is like not like not hiding the fact that someone's caused harm so that we acknowledge it in the in places of worship in jobs and communities and that we that there are programs um for rehabilitation for um, re-education. Um, so in terms of that communication, that is not just, it's the burden is not just on the survivor mm-hmm. and that we're also not asking the state to then step in mm-hmm. um, and and make these decisions. Like, because that's essentially what happens. We're asking the state and then the state, as we know, particularly in communities of color, um, these draconian, barbaric laws. Um, so often people are off, let, you know, let go free without any kind of accountability. And then even if they are serving time, um, what What's going on in those prisons? I, the whole registry uh, name, registry with people's names on that. I mean, there's so many examples of how much harm th- that that's done, mm-hmm. particularly with children. Um, that that's that's also a problem as well. Um, mm-hmm. Because do, I do believe in change. I do believe in transformation and evolution, and I do believe people can change. And I also, as you know, when thinking about children, I don't believe that children should be on registries or you know viewed as molesters for the rest of their lives. And that that's not the kind of that's not a, for me a humane or civil society that I want to live in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, You've written that some of your journey has been more recent around specifically speaking more publicly about your process of healing when it comes to child sexual assault. Could you share with us a little bit about that process for you of stepping up with the bravery and the support in this moment in your life to be able to be more public about that? Yeah, well, I'm a, let's see, 15, 2002, 15-year practitioner of a form of meditation titled, called Vipassana Meditation. Now, Vipassana Meditation, or known as insight, is practiced all over, and many traditions practice it or incorporate it into their practice. I'm in the tradition of Essen Goenka, but I, I shared this to say that I, in these courses range, the minimum as a new student you can take are 10 days, um, but old students can take shorter courses, but I've taken courses over the past 15 years, 10 days, 20 days, 30-day courses of silent meditation, 12 hours a day. Um, For 25 years, I've been in therapy working with um, Dr. Clara Whaley Perkins, a black feminist licensed clinical psychologist who's also the founder and director of an organization called the Life After Trauma Organization. I preface all this, what I'm about to share with these two specifically, therapy for 25 years, for passionate meditation for 15 years. 
I don't think I'd even be able to sit here, um, talk to you, do the work that I do without um, both of those um, tools, resources, um, in terms of as somebody who was molested at 10 and raped at 19 and, you know, just as a black queer woman in this country, in the United States, like that these tools, um, these resources have are kind of um, non-negotiable tools that have enabled me to move forward on my journey, life of living, and then also just doing the work that I believe I'm called to do. So I've always talked about being a rape survivor um, since I was raped in 1989. And I would say that I was an incest survivor, but I never named um, the what that meant, what that looked like. And I couldn't, it wasn't until I stopped, uh, finished my work on the film titled No, the Rape Documentary, which looks at adult heterosexual rape. Um, between um, black men, black men raping black women, cis black men and black women, everybody's able-bodied. I think that's important because it's a whole nother reality when you've been assaulted and you're not, you're physically disabled or deaf or blind. And so Noah's not dealing with that at all. And I want to acknowledge that. Um, that when I, I realized um, that I needed to go deeper um, with my work um, um, and because it's not easy, but for me, it was easier to talk about the rape that happened my sophomore year in college than to talk about my molestation as a child. Um, and not so much because I was trying to protect my grandfather, though I was until he passed away, but more importantly, or equally as important, I was trying to protect my, pa- I was protecting my parents who were veteran, um, civil rights activists. They met in the civil rights movement in Atlanta. Um, they're human international human rights activists. My father served 30 months in prison for refusing to, um, participate in America's war in Vietnam. Um, my mother's a feminist Islamic scholar. They work on trafficking, honor killings, um, women's liberation, black liberation, Roma, Sinti rights. So you name it, that this is what my parents who are divorced have dedicated their lives to, so to talk about what happened to me as a child would mean I would have to expose them mm-hmm. um, because they um, didn't do anything. I told them when I was a child what happened and they did not do anything to take me out of the situation. And so there's what happened from 10 to 12, but then there's also what happened from 12 to 41, which was engaging with my grandfather, helping him uh, take care of my grandmother when she had Alzheimer's, all of that. This is on my paternal side, my step-grandfather. So if it were not for Vipassana or therapy, I don't know, you know, where I'd be, how I'd be able to handle all of this. And and so in last year, 2016, because we're in 2017 now, um, I um, had been pushing my parents. In fact, Love with Accountability comes out of the work that I did with my parents. Um, Yes, it did. And because I started signing my emails, love with accountability, because they, uh, particularly my mom was saying, you know, because I really, everything kind of came to a head in 2015 when I recognized, oh my God, I've been protecting my parents and not, you know, and these folks haven't done anything. And so I really drew a line in the sand and was just like, either we're going to talk about what happened or I don't want to talk. Um, and so then it was basically don't do this to those who love you the most. We love you. And I was like, love with accountability. Um, well, due to a series of events, my mother really finally was able to come face to face with the fact that she did not protect me because she was in, I don't know if it was willful. I don't know. She would, but it was just like she, in her mind's eye, they did do something and, basically get over it. Um, 
But she came face to face with the fact that nothing was done. Um, and not only was nothing done as I was a child, but that I was sent to the place, the scene of where the crime occurred. I was taught to love the person who terrorized me. And I did love my grandfather deeply and I also feared him. So she came to grips with that um, and um, sought my forgiveness we privately, but then also wrote about it publicly um, that is published in a love with accountability online forum. And then we did a radio interview about it in a, a global international podcast, the spin with Esther Arma. So to be able to talk about um, what happened to have that validation finally 37 years later, right? I was, t- yeah. Um, to have my mom own up to the fact that she did not protect me. She, the self-defined black feminist woman who instituted the first sexual harassment policy in a program, a project in SNCC in 1964, 65. So, you know, that this is that same person who did not, not only did not believe her daughter or didn't do anything, that she put herself out there to say, I did not believe her. I did not protect her. Um, and I kept sending her to the scene of the crime over and over again. Um, and so one of the questions I always ask, you know, you, I, we can't undo what wasn't done. And so, and that's the ongoing, that's that healing work. And so what I'm grateful for is that we can pay it forward by telling the stories, by putting it out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Because of course you're sharing with such courage and vulnerability and honesty, I know can illuminate a path of more honesty forward for other folks. Mm-hmm. Um, many listeners I'm sure might have had some similar experiences within their biological families and other spaces where perhaps folks that we had imagined were there for us to support us, to protect us, whatever it might be for whatever their own reasons are, have not been able able to confront ways in which perhaps they either didn't protect their children or their other loved ones. Would you have any words in particular for those listeners that might be confronting similar experiences, say, within their families and aren't in a place for a variety of reasons, perhaps, to be able to have those dialogues openly? Yeah, I... You know, and I, I, as of today, you know, and I, I, and you know, I don't know when this is going to air, but I think it's really important to just say it in terms of the date. You know, as of August fourteenth, twenty seventeen, my father and I have not had a dialogue about what has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we've, there's been some cyber dialogue and dialogues, and for anyone who knows me or can even Google me, I, my father and I were so. I mean, I still love my father deeply and am close to him in many ways, but the level of closeness that he and I shared. If anybody had said who's which parent would get it, I would have, I would have put my life on the line to say it would be my dad and not my mom because we had such my mother and I had such a fraught. I mean, it's just been so challenging on so many levels. So that's that's also been a powerful lesson in terms of that you don't know who's going to get it or who's going to be able to see it. Um, and for the, you know, so I think that that's really important. And also that people don't get it until they get it. And that's not to say that you don't keep pushing, but it is, I just recognize, I spelled it. I just basically was like A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And my mom still couldn't see it for, because that veil that was, was protecting her. And then finally, due to a series of events that were partially connected to me, and I can't go into it because it involves other people, but, you know, someone very close to her really helped her see. Um, But it wasn't even me who helped her see that just kind of, that let the veil fall down. So I, in terms of those 
people, and I think there's so many of us, right, um, where they can't have those conversations. What I would say first and foremost is that our healing and our liberation cannot be contingent upon anyone else, period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that we cannot wait for the healing to occur until your mother or your brother or your sister or your lover or your friend or your rabbi or your imam or minister or, you know, Babalao, until they see it. Because unfortunately, that's not the case. And I have to say, not in some kind of like romantic way but it was I remember distinctly when I was just like my mother's not going to get it she's just not going to get it and she's in her 70s I'm her only child and if the life cycle goes as we think it's going to go I'm going to have to not have to I will want to you know take care of her when she's unable to if she gets to a point where she's unable to take care of herself and I can't do it with resentment in my heart. I can't do it with, you know, and so I got to let it go because she's not going to get it. That doesn't mean that I allow her to just say anything or it doesn't mean, but I can't just keep trying to force her to see it. She doesn't see it. And Anjali, I swear (laughs) when the moment I let it go is when she saw it. And it's Mm. just kind of a deep thing. Like I I remember I called her specifically, specifically to say, and said all that, like, I I don't think you're ever going to understand what I'm saying. And we just had to figure out a way to, to be. And it was then that she shared her own revelation that she wasn't even sure if or how she was going to share it with me. So... That was a very powerful thing. I have now, unlike the, my mom, I have not let, like, I keep thinking my father better get it. Wasn't he going to get it? So I, I haven't had that release, that detachment that I hope to one day be able to get. Um, and I, so all that to say that I think that what's really important is that we focus on our healing and, um, and we may, and that healing, if we make it contingent upon others, we may never get healed. Um, and definitely I would be, I mean, I 100% transparent that the act that my mother did had, it, it created seismic healing, not only between her and I, but within myself. So I don't want to downplay it. Of course we want people to acknowledge the ways in which they caused harm. I mean, in her instance, she was a bystander. She didn't even molest me. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Neither my father, these are bystanders. So just even how painful that bystander stuff. In fact, I feel like it was more painful mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, and particularly in their instances, because they are self defined, demonstrated track records of international human rights defenders. But what does it mean to save the world if you can't save your child? Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are things that I'm still grappling with. And so I don't want to act like, I mean, healing is a journey and not a destination. And I just think it's really critical that for those of us who are CSA survivors, that if need be, we cultivate our own community, our own families. Um, if if the people in our lives who've caused of harm are unable, unwilling to be accountable, I don't think we should subject ourselves to craziness or violence, um, um, emotional violence going on. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to push people to see, you know, you know, to to see if they are in a space where they're willing to be accountable. But if they're not, that that can't be. Therefore, you can't be healed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and on that front, so taking it back to this topic of community and having to acknowledge that so many of our movement spaces are not survivor centered, um, there is still so much shame, so much denial, so much fear, so much apprehension around getting real and being honest about uh, how 
incredibly endemic uh, sexual assault and CSA still is in so many spaces. Um, What can you share for our listeners that maybe still are navigating through that denial in certain, say, movement spaces, workspaces as well with friends, loved ones, family members um, that maybe don't have the sense of community yet that I hear you speaking to of folks that are out in the open having these conversations and creating the life-affirming alternatives that we need to be able to sustain ourselves and do the work that we're doing. Yeah, and you know, I don't, I'm kind of heartbroken, I think in many ways, about a lot of our movement spaces because we aren't talking about sexual violence and gender violence. We're not talking about it. And, you know, while we're talking about saving the environment, Mm -hmm. saving people, saving, you know, stopping race and stopping, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, the destruction of our planet, but we're, we're not thinking about it in terms of what are we doing with our children? So while we're saving the world, are our children being sacrificed? And and does that mean like, oh, if I if I have to address my child being sacrificed, does that mean I can't go to the meeting? I can't go to the protest? Like, what does that mean? Um, I think that in our movements, too many of us are causing, we're replicating the harm that we've experienced, and we're not even addressing that even. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of work. Um, that we have to do that we always keep thinking we can't do because we got to stop the lynching. We got to stop the, you know, the white supremacy. We got to stop the cop beating. We got to stop the the oil drilling, the fracking. And yes, 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 we do. But, you know, if if I'm not, if I don't feel safe, even if there is, you know, an unfracked, you know what I'm saying, Mm -hmm. undrilled place, what does that mean? You Mm -hmm. know, and definitely, of course, thinking about animals, um, you know, all, you know, wanting all beings to be, you know, free and safe. But I think that that's, that's a lot of work speaking as someone who is very left of center, probably not the leftist of left of center, but definitely left <laughs> of center and being in movements and even in anti-violence movements and seeing how things are replicated and, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and observing the painful thing of like when, we invite people in rather than call people out that even those folks who do the work, who have the analysis, don't want to practice it, don't want to put it into practice. So for me, I think that that's something that I also think about in our movements. Like how do we move from theory and analysis to practice? And it's hard work. I mean, it's just I think about a very dear um, friend, um, Mia Mingus, who is in the Bay Area trans um Transformative Justice um, Collective, and they do a lot of work. Um, they, the P- BATJC, around transformative justice, and me as a transracial adoptee, Korean, um, queer, disabled activist. And one of the things that I've learned just being friends with her is how how hard transformative justice work is, but yet necessary. I mean, one perfect example is I was last fall sharing some challenges that I was having around being accountable to myself, around how I, my health, my daily practice, meditate, all of this. And so we had a 90-day accountability thing where every day Mia would call me or text or just to kind of check in. We made a list of things. And it was just deep to watch that over that 90-day period what a struggle it was to maintain what I was committing to myself for my own well-being. So, And I think it was such an important exercise to then think about it for people who abuse or, you know, like in terms of having compassion for ourselves, we we keep looking for these these um overnight successes or like we're just we're just gonna stop racism or we're just gonna stop this and I just kind of feel like when we think about the Iroquois nation it's like seven generations like 
we're in this Twitter age and I love Twitter and social media. <laughs> it's just not going to be solved. Mm-hmm. One thing, some of the conversations I've had with my mom was like, I was like, mom, you loved me. You carried me in your womb for nine months. You breastfed me for 18 months. You educated me, all these kinds of things. And you couldn't see it and you didn't protect me. And even when I told you, the 10-year-old little girl told you what was going on, you couldn't protect me. And I am your flesh and blood. So I said, so based upon that, what are we expecting from the white police officer who from birth was taught that I was less than human? Mm -hmm. So how are we, you know, like, so you couldn't protect me. So why am I expecting this cop to to care about me. And I say that not to say don't, we don't hold the cop accountable, sure. but I just think the ways in which we're moving, we're not even thinking of like, let's think about this realistically. And I think if we could start in our families and think about the ways in which we cause harm, which is, I really believe it's the root child sexual abuse, then we could get to these branches. But I would offer that it's so much easier to talk about, you mm-hmm. know, stopping the cop or stopping, you know, or, you know, tearing down these Confederate statues, which I definitely one to tear down but it's just kind of like that's easy that's mm-hmm. easy work or the folks mm-hmm. even the white supremacists who want to go rally and tear down and burn stuff that's easy work then i mm-hmm. bet you how based on the statistics how many of those folks have been are dealing or in domestic violence really are survivors of rape and child what's going on there mm-hmm. you know but yet they want to use a car to run us over you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. so but if we could get to that root mm-hmm. there Um, and, um, and and I think we don't want to go, we don't want to deal internally, internally in terms of accountability to ourselves, internally in terms of accountability in our immediate communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For so many folks, it's easier to point the finger of accountability elsewhere as opposed to internally in terms of really stepping up and inviting ourselves into deeper integrity when it Mm -hmm. comes to that praxis that you were Mm -hmm. talking about, actually walking the talk, uh, That really reminds me of some tremendous indigenous feminist interventions into some of this work, reminding us of the deep interconnectedness between how we treat land and how we treat one another Mm. and ourselves, our bodies. So the idea that, right, uh, the relationship that we have with land and with the earth quite often is emblematic of the relationship that we can have with our bodies and with one another. So, of course, in a moment of such ecocide, it's not entirely surprising then that we would be continuing to perpetuate such violence on ourselves and on one another. And exactly as you're saying, holding ourselves Mm -hmm. accountable um, with all of the poison that we have to unlearn, so much propaganda that we have to unlearn. Um, Absolutely, it is so much easier said than done in the face of all of that still being in the center of that storm right in 2017 in the U.S. to step up and unapologetically practice loving and respecting ourselves and our boundaries as they're evolving, right, when the ground underneath us is shifting so rapidly so often. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that interconnectedness when it comes to how we even make meaning out of and tell stories about all of the dynamics that play in our lives and the world is so important if you ask me Mm -hmm. i agree Mm -hmm. i agree Mm -hmm. i definitely agree uh could you talk a little bit about uh visions for how especially say our movement spaces and communities families could be more to invoke one language, say trauma-informed or trauma-enhanced, as some people would say. So what we could imagine it feeling like or looking like 
um, if we sensed into some steps forward around that, um, especially, again, in movement spaces where there is so much work to be done around all this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that we need to acknowledge that more of us than not, many, you know, have ex- are, have experienced trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's that I really think we need to always start with ourselves first and foremost and mm-hmm. stop, you know, and I think about when I started working on my film, No, the rape documentary many years ago, like in 1994, when I first started working on it, it was like, I wanted to help all those black women out there. Like that was my goal. Like they need so much help, so much help. Um, and then like 11, 12 years later, I realized that making no saved my life. So I was like thinking I was helping those women out there who've been impacted by sexual violence and, but I was, and, may, and ho- hopefully I did. But I was, but I was really helping myself, and so I think that that is kind of um, really important. Because um, I, I mean, I just think it. I don't. I'm not gonna. Not that you're asking me, but name any organizations or collectors or groups. But I just think so many places they have. I mean, when you read their platform, I mean, it's just so moving. It's so beautiful um, around anti-oppression and you know, folks of color or queer or you know, everybody and indigenous people and. But then it's just kind of like you're looking at what's going on inside and people, it's just, it's replicating, just replicating even white supremacist structures, right? White, you know, patriarchy, all of that. And so I think it's, it, to be trauma informed is to, I think, begin with ourselves. I think it is to be vigilant. We have to be vigilant. And I, you know, speak myself, like I'm not like, it's, it's, I'm a work in progress. And so it's just being vigilant around um, compassion, like um, being vigilant around the ways in which I'm hopefully not uh, the ways in which I, I'm using master's tools. Uh, and so like and how do I let go of those tools? And and if I can't, if those are the only tools that are around, what can I envision? Um, so I, I think that that is really important and, and, and not thinking that we can skip steps. Mm-hmm. Like there's always, we can't, we, you know, we got to stop this or, and yes, we may need to stop something in that moment. Mm-hmm. We may, we may need to stop something in that moment, but there's, I think that there, there must be an understanding that haste makes waste, that it's not necessarily going to happen in our lifetime. Um, that, I mean, that's always should be the goal to, for it to happen in our lifetime, but that not at, not at the extent not at anyone's expense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I think that w- that is a key thing of, of, of understanding about terror, uh, about um, trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That long view is so important, especially in terms of warding against burnout potentially, or a sense of urgency that can actually really be quite harmful. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. There's also, it's so interesting on the way over here, I was talking with someone that was, um, acknowledged that he was maybe a little bit uh, cynical or jaded in this moment. And he shared um, a question, why should I be stepping up and pouring my heart and soul into trying to affect some kind of positive social transformation in East Oakland in my neighborhood when my neighbors aren't doing anything? They're not taking care of themselves. Um, They're not looking out after anyone or anything beyond just themselves. And it is so revealing the way that 
it seems as if so many folks can get distracted um, by these, you know, I can name it as a diversionary campaign, right, as opposed to having that kind of clarity um, that it's not even just about us as individuals. The scope and magnitude of what we're talking about is so much deeper and wider than that. Uh, And as opposed to, say, understanding, you know, we could be making our ancestors proud right now. This could be for future generations right now and all of our future generations and all of our ancestors, not just say biologically or genealogically one of ours at the expense of all of the others. Uh, But what would it mean for us to inspire ourselves and each other um, to essentially raise the bar in terms of our imagination, like I hear you talking about, Mm -hmm. to really be able to sense into something else um, and the kind of focus and concentration that it can take to be able to create that is so significant. That's one of the reasons why I'm so grateful that you're sharing um, explicitly around healing and the importance of finding those practices for each of us that can allow us to be grounded in whatever our purpose is um, and not sort of as easily um, get distracted by other ways of being that might not be as life-affirming for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners what it is that you have going on now. It could be an upcoming project or maybe where you're at with the Love with Accountability project. Mm. Well, my fellowship with um, was supposed was initially a, a two year fellowship that was going to end at December of this year to uh, 2017. We've now been, uh, we have an extend, a two year extension, so it won't end until 2019. So, what I'm hoping to do with Love of the Calendar, first of all, I want to write and, and, and publish. I want to write a um, a book. I want to write a book around love with accountability. Um, I want to, I did a forum last year, a, a online forum, which anyone can access on the love with accountability.com website of 29 writings, um, of which one is the one of my mother and my, my piece by diasporic, um, black people from the U S and the, the, the Caribbean and they are cis and, um, men and women and gender queer and gender nonconforming. Um, and trans men um, um, contributors writing about their their histories, histories um, around sexual violence and their vision of how we can um, address it with love, with accountability. That was my one criteria. How do we address CSA? Like, so I was like, I'm all for sharing, you know, breaking our silences and sharing the trauma if you want to. But the ultimate goal is how do we move beyond that? So that I'm wanting to do another form or include more writings um, for that. I um, I'm, I'm toying with the idea of a short film, nothing like 30 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, something online that's accessible, just really kind of fleshing out um, love with accountability, um, some more um, visually. So those are things I'm I'm working on and thinking about. I hope to do some convenings, some love with accountability convenings. Um, I'm based in on the East Coast in Philadelphia, so I'm and housed right now um, in residence at University of Pennsylvania. So possibly something at Penn um, in New York, um, maybe out here um, in D.C. So these are things that they're kind of information I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I will continue to tour, screen my film, um, know the rape documentary, um, and in fact. I'm going to be presenting it uh, at a global uh, diasporic African conference in Spain in November. And I'm very excited about it because when I was a 
what would have been my the summer before my junior year in college, I went to Spain. Well, my sophomore year, I was sexually so I was raped, and then I from the rape. Um, I became pregnant and had, was able to have a safe and legal abortion and then, and very traumatized from all of it. My father had a conference that he was attending and presenting at nuclear disarmament conference for speaking at the times in 89 mm-hmm. in, um, Spain. And I went with him because I, um, and I, and then I stayed and backpacked by myself. I had been studying Spanish since I was 11 and, and was very fluent. I'm not anymore, but I was very fluent, like dreaming in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And so while in Spain in 89, in one of my journal entries that I have to this day, I said that I wanted to make films that affirmed the power and strength of, of black women, black people. And I said, if I was going to get in debt, it would be over a film and not a college mm-hmm. degree and <laughs> shortly left school and um, enrolled in the school of life. <laughs> and um, and so and I haven't been back to Spain since. I've traveled mm-hmm. a lot of places in the world since then, but I haven't been back. So to return to Spain 22 years later to present No, the rape documentary at this conference, it, it will be a coming full circle, be a very powerful experience. Oh, that is so beautiful. Yeah, I feel like it is a gift to brand new survivor of rape who wasn't even like able to name it hadn't even started therapy um who it was it's like i feel like it's the gift that i'm giving to how old was i then 20 year old aisha mm, incredible and the gift that a 20 year old aisha was giving to your future self to be able to archive your dream with that kind right. of care for you to be able to look right. back on now that's so right, beautiful. right. And I'm saying 22 years. No, it was 28 years oh, later. Okay, right. Yeah, but mm. you're right that, mm-hmm. that it's like, mm. you know, Aisha was like, put a down payment on the future. <laughs> the future is coming back. So there's something really powerful. I watch, yeah. I'm going to have to reflect upon and write about that. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Mm. Uh, could you share maybe some one or a couple of great projects or organizations or collectives um, that's doing work that's really inspiring to you around this topic? Mm. Well, definitely, I would say the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective. Um, mm-hmm. I really, I think from all that I know and I, you know, complete 100% happy disclaimer, Mia Mingus is one of my very dear friends. I think that they are really working hard to, um, uh, uh, I don't even want to use I'm so aware of ableist language. I was about to say walk the talk, but they are mm-hmm. definitely, um, you know, putting it, theory into practice. It's a lived practice and praxis and it's mm-hmm. hard work. So, and I would say a lot of the projects um, that the Just Beginnings Collaborative um, is funding. So in terms of the fellows, um, the Heal Project by Ignacio Rivera um, is really, um, really looking at um, the critical need of sex education and not in some kind of like, this is a fallopian tube and all that, but really that's important, but really getting into how that sex education is power and it is a tool, you know, that can play a pivotal and powerful role in um, interrupting and ending child sexual abuse. Um, Ahmad Green Hayes has a very powerful project called Children of Cumbahee, which is really looking at child sexual abuse in the black church. 
Um, so these are things, I mean, and Luz Marquez Benbao has, it's um, Afro-Latinidad, which is really acknowledging, and there's no need to acknowledge, it's real, The but the African presence in um, Latino, Latinx culture and child sexual abuse in those communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then the, the um, project Mirror Memoirs, which by Amita Swadeen, is really is looking at um, um, child sexual abuse through the lens of LG, uh, of really gender queer, uh, gender nonconforming and trans, as well as queer survivors of color. Um, studies really show that it is gender queer children and um, um, trans children who are, whether they transition or not, that they are the most vulnerable. So just, just um, so in terms of the CSA work, I feel really powerful to be in a really, I feel really um, happy to be in a, an incredible cohort, uh, Sujata Baliga and the project Impact Justice around restorative justice and child sexual abuse, to be around a, a cohort of just thought leaders and, and thinkers who are not only um, that they are actually doing the work and creating space. Um, so around CSA that, and it's, it's not, and I want to say that we've kind of created our own self-defined survivor union, those of us in, and, and, but it, it's not easy. It's not in terms of the easy work in terms of ourselves, right, the work that we're doing, our individual projects. But it's not easy work even being in community with each other. And I don't say that, like, it's it's not easy work, period. It's not – this is not a commentary on them. It's a commentary on humans. And I think that this na- this notion that it's easy or if it's not easy, it's not okay. Like, Dr. Bernice Johnson Regan has a whole – a wonderful essay on coalition building. And it's mm-hmm. like – if, if you're in a room with people and everybody's comfortable, you're not doing coalition building. Mm-hmm. You know, that it, it, it needs to be uncomfortable, hopefully with compassion and accountability and awareness. So I'm not, but it, you know, that this is, that's the work. I mean, this melting quote unquote pot, or a lot of it by force, right? Mm-hmm. Is, you know, we're bringing all these different cultures and histories and, you know, all of that. And then trying to figure out how to be, um, humane in a society that was founded on inhumanity and barbarism. Mm-hmm. Around that, thank you for sharing everything that you just did. What uh, incredible resources for listeners to be able to learn more about, hopefully, and support as well. Uh, you're mentioning alternatives uh, that may be more just, more healing, more restorative, and or transformative um, within the realm of sex education. Could you talk a little bit more about um, some of your vision of what that might look like? So the kind of right sex ed that would be necessary in this moment in time for us to create that alternative world that we're wanting to embody. Yeah, and that's a, I mean, for me, I'm learning a lot from my sibling um, survivor comrade friend, Ignacio Rivera. So um, because I realized that I have a lot of, um, I mean, some, I enjoy sex, but I also, it's, um, I, f- I feel really kind of conservative or like, ee, like I get kind of squirmish and shy about talking about things in public. And, and I, just being in community with Ignacio, I'm, I'm seeing how important it is to talk about um, pleasure, to talk mm-hmm. about pleasure, mm-hmm. even with young folks, consensual pleasure. And, you know, I mean, I'm not talking about kids, but really 
naming it and you know and and um and I, I for me I defer to Ignacio and I feel like I mean I know they have all these um videos and writings um around it on the Heal Project's website and they have a whole sex ed component uh where they are asking parents to talk about what they want their children to know mm-hmm. um they have they are a parent a mother um they're a mother and they have they have a a talk show with their daughter Amanda real and their daughter Amanda's 28 but just and Amanda has never been assaulted and Ignacio is a survivor so just that work around um talking about sex openly mm-hmm. um Ignacio wrote a very powerful piece in my love with accountability form that really spells out. It's kind of like a primer, and of course you can go deep on their website, but really spells out what it means. And they really kind of um, equate, use the analogy of being a lifeguard, like making mm. sure people are safe in the swimming pool, mm-hmm. you know, and that and making sure people are safe in the swimming pool. It means talking about sex. Mm-hmm. In my film, No, Loretta Ross says, in order to do rape prevention, we have to do sex education. Right. So there's this notion that we, if we talk about sex, particularly with cisgender girls, oh my God, they can't know anything. Mm-hmm. No, we have to really... Um, I don't even want to say arm them. I don't want to use military terms, but we have to inform them. We have mm-hmm. to educate them and boys and genderqueer mm-hmm, people, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know? Right. If not, what vacuum exactly. is going is already always filled, right, exactly. by the sort of dominant rape culture right. of the corporate media and right. the like. So we know, right, what education does exist that we're saturated in if we don't take that back into our own hands. And what happens if we, you know, particularly we, by doing that, we could be giving language helping people where their bodies are being, you know, touched against their will. We're giving language for them to say, oh, this is happening to me. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, so, I mean, but this require. I mean, I think that part of it is really a, um, an intentional silencing because mm-hmm. there's so many harm doers everywhere. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the less we all know, the more yep. that this is able to be pervasive. Yep. Right. And don't have that cultural vocabulary and share and build and grow and evolve it. So then we can actually name whatever the problem is to then be able to actually shift into something else. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, something that has been so trying for me around this is that so many self-proclaimed feminist spaces are sex positive in a way that seems to be entirely inattentive to rape culture, where there's Mm. such... Uh, emphasis as I have observed it to be positive about sex in a way that can seem to diminish what otherwise could be a space for folks to get real around their healing, around internalized trauma, around how pervasive violence continues to be and has been in so many of our lives and families and neighborhoods and communities. Uh, And so what it might mean then to be able to create subcultural spaces where then we can be more transparent and in the open about the entire spectrum of right sexual and or erotic experiences. So then we can bring in the pleasure without maybe trying to overemphasize that. Um, and we can be real about the violence and what needs to be transformed, but in a way that doesn't unnecessarily um, encourage, say, trauma bonding or re-traumatization or re-triggering. Yeah. No, I think that's so important. And it's, I mean, I just... Um, I don't even want to give the book a plug at all, but I wrote a, a critique, um, Signs, the Feminist Journal in the U.S. invited 
um, several feminists um, to write a critique to a book um, written by a white feminist, basically kind of saying that we're just becoming paranoid. Right. And it's just, it's, it's such a problem. Book, so yeah. many levels yeah. and I think that that it becomes that like I'm very concerned about what's happening um, mm-hmm. and this is a, a grown an adult who is a tenured professor teaching millennials so I'm just or yeah. you know it's just I am very concerned about that mm-hmm. and I think that we don't have enough conversations about what does pleasure look like without sex thank you that I mean so I love sex I think sex mm-hmm. is, let's mm-hmm. have it but mm-hmm. also like what what are ways that we can experience pleasure and be in our bodies mm-hmm. Without being sexual, mm-hmm. you know, and are we willing to do that? And what what does it mean to not um, be um, to to do it without intoxicants? Right. Absolutely. You know, like what does it mean to just and, you know, I don't drink or take drugs. But even if mm-hmm. you do, what does it mean? Can you just be present in that moment or mm-hmm. in those moments? Mm-hmm. So I think that just how pleasure is defined, mm-hmm. um, that can we do it in a way that, it, you know, that honors everyone's humanity, everyone's desires. Um, that's just something I know I've been grappling with and even in, in, in partnership in terms of just, you know, even observing within myself how like I just want to like go like uh, at times I've just want to go kind of straight to sex when I'm realizing, you know, that there's something else going on here. Like, what am I trying, what am I masking? What am I covering up? What am I looking for craving? And why does sex equate that, you know, I'm desirable or this will make me feel better or whatever. And again, mm-hmm. nothing's wrong with that, with sex and all that, but it's just kind of like, are the, is this the only way? Right. Thank you for that. Uh, this overemphasis on sexual behavior and in a way that can be kind of biologically centered, maybe genitalia focused mm-hmm. at the expense of all of the other possibilities. Mm-hmm. Last week, I interviewed Dr. Kim Talbert, who in a class that she teaches at the University of Alberta uh, titled Decolonizing Sexualities, invites her students to for a final paper, refrain from using the English words sex or sexuality at all, Um, in part, as I understand it, to encourage them to be more specific and to be a little more nuanced around, are you referencing connection or intimacy more broadly, or is there maybe a word in one of your mother tongues that might more specifically get towards, gesture towards something else that you're speaking to, maybe yearning for or longing for, Uh, but when we are saturated and again and just inundated with all of this especially corporate messaging and advertising around what sex is and isn't what it's supposed to look like the stories that we're supposed to tell around it uh, it can be so easy to have that seep into our consciousness in ways that we might not be aware of otherwise and continue to sort of perpetuate some of that toxicity at the expense of um, what I've been calling erotic self-determination, and I'm still looking for more language around, um, specifically that's not rooted in the Greek, right, root uh, eros, but in all of our ancestral brilliance as well. So creating those spaces for us to be curious and for us to remember, right, uh, in all of those realms instead of just even linguistically just perpetuating the storytelling that we might have inherited. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yes. No, mm-hmm. that's so, that sounds powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Such an honor to be doing the work, my goodness, uh, and creating these spaces, um, which I appreciate so much in your work for folks to be able to be more honest about what we actually have experienced, what we might long for or be curious about for our children, for future generations, for the sake of our ancestral healing, certainly for ourselves as individuals and for each other, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. May I ask you, because this work is so challenging, uh, to share something that inspires you or encourages you personally as you continue to show up to this tremendously challenging work every day in your life? Hmm. I mean, I think what what inspires me is hearing that the work is having impact um, and inspires me seeing, knowing that violence continues to happen. So it's just like, you know, I think that that, it, I don't know if it inspires me, it ignites me, it ignites fire, you know, the fuel. Um, but it does, it's exhausting, um, draining. Um, but it, I think that just the, the, the inspiration for me is really knowing that the work is having an impact on people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's, it's definitely, it's, it's, it's hard work, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really, I mean, I was at this, the mirror memoirs got two day gathering, which is, um, and then afterwards, um, at the Cal Casa, California coalition against sexual assault statewide conference and co-presented with Amita Swadin, who is the, uh, founder of mirror memoirs and her sister, Sulakshmi Vaid, who's her youngest sister, who's 18. So, we did a workshop traversing cultures. They're both Indian, South Asian um, generation um, to talk about the transformative power of storytelling to interrupt and heal from child sexual abuse. And um, so I got to California on Sunday night. And so from Monday through Thursday evening, it was just it was just CSA violence. again. You know, it was just intense. And then I came here to Oakland, rode back with Mia and spent day, like, cause I don't live here. So it's beautiful to be in the Bay area and to spend Friday on the Pacific coast and then Saturday at Mount um, Tam. And so it was just, just to be able to be in nature, which unfortunately is a privilege, right? So often many, particularly frontline workers at rate crisis centers, they don't get these breaks. So I don't know if I could do this without being able to take breaks. Now, fortunately, right now I have a paid fellowship. In the past, I would have to take breaks and still like deal with, oh my God, there's a dollar in my checking account. I'm not being facetious or, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to figure out how to make ends meet um, in the midst of it. So I do believe that it's definitely taken its toll. I mean, the actual, like, so the trauma that I've endured has impacted, but then also living, sleeping, breathing, trauma has taken, takes its toll. Um, um, Mm -hmm. so I've been thinking a lot about that in terms of what does self-care look like and what is, you know, um, yeah, what, what is, what does that look like? And so that's where Vipassana plays a role and, um, therapy plays a role, but even, even that, those two incredible, but I'm recognizing more the older I get, I I need to be out in nature more, you know, I need to connect with the earth, Mm -hmm. um, which is hard for me in Philadelphia. I'm in the concrete jungle. Um, but it's there's some places that I realized you can take a trip and not like a, a public mm-hmm. transportation trip and get to a park or something. Mm-hmm. But um, and even though I don't really like the 
Atlantic Ocean. I love the Atlantic Ocean. I don't like Atlantic City and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's like mm-hmm. what they've done, the casinos. Mm-hmm. I can't get to an ocean because of casinos. It's very cheap to get out there because they want mm-hmm. you to spend money. But I can mm-hmm. at least get to the ocean and mm-hmm. get back. Mm-hmm. So I'm beginning to think about that. Like maybe I should just do that um, because, and as opposed to just like making a wow, I'm here to see, you know, I can go to the Pacific Coast or see some redwoods. But, yeah, just think about ways to... Just kind of um, exhale and and breathe and not view that as being self-indulgent. You know what I'm saying? Because we Mm -hmm. live in this world where it's only a certain group, certain class of people who are who should be able to do that. Anybody Mm -hmm. else, Mm -hmm. you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for naming that, because uh, it's just astounding to me and unsurprising how in so many movement spaces there is still such right, whether it's vestiges of the Protestant work ethic or self-flagellation or, you know, these I certainly inherited one of those intergenerational martyrdom complexes from the women in my family, and that can kill you if we do not intervene and create new patterns and habits for ourselves and each other and create right healthier cultures for us to be able to uh, experience life affirmatively in um, and not just right sort of commensurate while burning out together, but right sharing stories and cultures of us being so committed and dedicated that we live as opposed to dying, right, as a part of a struggle, so to speak, but being really intentional about the stories that we're telling, mm-hmm. what we're giving power to around mm-hmm. all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's so true. It's very, and I think that that, that in spirituality, mm-hmm. I think that, that that because so many of us have been harmed by spirituality growing up, religion really, more so right. than spirituality, that when you talk about invoking a spiritual practice, when you talk about something, like a lot of folks like roll their eyes in their head or think that mm-hmm. you're not about the work that, you right. know, that so right. that is, that is, I think that is a tension that we have to continue to struggle with in our movements in a way mm-hmm. that, you know, yeah, because it's like we can't can't live without our lives. We just cannot. And mm-hmm. and if we are violent with ourselves, how are we not going to be violent with each other? Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so much um, decolonizing of ourselves, including our minds, that still needs to happen. And then all of the spaces, frankly, so many of the spaces anyways. Um, so certainly when it comes to right, the sort of dominant Abrahamic or Judeo-Christian dichotomy that there's the sacred and the profane. So what are you into when in so many of our traditions that kind of binary would be unfathomable? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so just unapologetically doing what we know we need to do, being who we know that we need to be um, and moving beyond, right, those kinds of divisions that can keep us hurting unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners based upon everything that we've gotten into so far? Um, I just, I think I want to just, and I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's on topic, but off topic. But one of the things I have struggled with and including right before coming here today is just kind of like a wrecking, like, I think when, when we do this work, right. And, you know, we don't, Hopefully we're not doing it in vain and we're not doing it for ourselves. I mean, we're doing it partially, obviously, for our, usually we're starting with ourselves, but working outward. But just to recognize that the work is about the work. And I share that. That's speaking to myself publicly um, because I've struggled with, like, um, feeling like, why isn't my work not more known? Why isn't it not? I mean, it's known, but it's like not known in terms of on a certain type of like a a mainstream, whatever the heck that means, level or whatever. And then and then at times in trying to feel like, well, how do I get that? How do I get that recognition or whatever? And it's just like today I kind of hit a wall because it's just 
it's not happening in a way in which I envisioned. That happened to me when my film, when I completed my film. And um, and then kind of falling back on, like, that's not the it, that's not why I, that's not why I, I can't speak by anybody else. That's not why I'm doing the work and to really honor that. Right. And just kind of do the work. But it's really it is a hard it's a tension. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've been doing this work before there was any form of social media, um, <laughs> um, barely email. In fact, there wasn't, email. you know, in some ways. So just reminding myself of that and, and kind of like not looking elsewhere comparing myself to other folks and just you know just to kind of do the and not do the work like oh just toil in the fields kind of thing but just kind of like you know the work needs to just stand um on its own and I think it's also it's a it's part of my own kind of I think healing journey about being visible and recognized and all of that kind of stuff so that's just something that I've observed within myself and I see it in various spaces, like it's just kind of like, are we using the platform to elevate the message? Or are we using the message to elevate ourselves? Thank you. You know, and so what I really want to do is I want to use the platform to elevate the message, you know. And so that and that is a constant that's a constant um I think tension, and I wish that more of us. I wish we could all be those of us where it is attention, not everybody, but like be honest and talk about it. You know what I'm saying? Because I think that it does impact the work. It impacts how we deal with each other. I don't want to see anybody who's doing uh, transformational work as an enemy, as a competition, as a anything. Like, oh, why? Why am I not at the microphone? Like, I don't want that. Like, that's mm-hmm. that's not what I want. That's not why. Um, I'm doing this work, you know, I'm doing the work to save myself and to hopefully save others as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but just wanting to name that because I think I see a lot of them, particularly in the social media age and 24-hour news cycle and who gets to say what and, you know, the think pieces that come out before anybody's had a moment to think about what they've written. I'm like, well, wait, it just mm-hmm. this just happened five seconds. How do you have an analysis so quickly? Mm-hmm. So and myself as well. So just like let's remember that this is about the work and it's about people's lives and it's really about all of our liberation Mm -hmm. thank you for that uh and around the work how can people get a sense of some of what you have been up to so you mentioned on the feminist wire there's yeah the um, feminist wire and we're going through a lot of changes but the feminist wire.com and i have Mm -hmm. yeah um and then my uh, two websites, the know the rape documentary dot org, which is about my film No, and then love with accountability dot com, which has all of the writings and stuff on, about the love with accountability. Um, so those are big places. I'm a big social media person as well. Mm-hmm. So, and sometimes I keep my social media sites much more up to date than I do my, um, my, um, my, my websites. Cause that takes, so like my love with accountability, Facebook page is, you know, definitely keeping things abreast and yeah. So, but, but even if you, if you go to love with accountability and know the rape documentary, those sites, then they'll link you to the Twitters and the Facebook mm-hmm, and all mm-hmm, of that. Mm-hmm. So I think that those are the best places, um, including feminist wire pieces and stuff. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, I'll be sure to link to all of those Thank sites you so, so then much. listeners can get better acquainted with your work. Thank you so much for your time and for all the work that you do. Thank you, Anjali. This has been really a gift to share this time and space with you. 
That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Angelina Thupadia, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comment section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to have on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. Power, power to the people, it's the hour of the peaceful. Free.